You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 184. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. We've got uh, a whole bunch of issues to talk about today. Uh, well, we, I mean, I guess it's the royal we, or, or you know, we as in me and you, because this is a, a solo show. So, uh, first of all, I'm going to talk about an instance of YouTube censorship I came across recently uh, uh, with um, regarding uh, Professor Henry Abramson, who's been on the show, and that's really interesting. Maybe we could talk about that and academic freedom a little bit. I'm going to talk about uh, the uh, crypto regulation in the infrastructure bill that's currently in Congress. I don't have a good sense of what that regulation really is, but I have a, a, a broader sense of, you know, what, what what's the politics of that? How's, how's, uh, how's crypto Twitter reacting and um, uh, what does it mean going forward? And then finally, I am going to give you my idea for how a third device on our person, which might sound really crazy, but this is just a crazy idea I came up with this week. So who knows if that's going, if it's going to be worth it or not. But I believe we're heading toward a world where we're all going to have to own a new device, which uh, which is pretty crazy. Why would why would I why a new device? You know why why, why isn't a phone good enough and the seven other devices we have? But I think that's what's happening. Uh, so I'm going to talk about all three in succession. So first of all, uh, this is uh, let's talk about the the. YouTube censorship uh, uh, example, and this one is particularly egregious uh, for me because you know if you look at Henry Abramson, who has been on the show episode eighty-two, he does a lot of Jewish history lectures. He's like the last person in the world who um, should be uh, censored, uh, but or or, or he, he, you would think that, that the powers that be would would want to censor. Uh, but I guess if you're talking about uh, important stuff. Uh, <laughs> eventually, uh, eventually, you'll you'll be caught up in something like this. So he had a lecture on anti-Semitism, and obviously, you know, the lecture contained anti-Semitic images. So I could see if someone you know posted those images as, as memes. Maybe you wouldn't want that, um, but um, that was flagged as as hate speech. And what was very strange was, you know, he asked YouTube to review it. YouTube kept it down after review. And then I believe a little a time later, maybe a few weeks later, uh, it was finally restored. But it took a lot of work to restore it. You had to go through several review processes. So, um, you know, the, the, the Henry Abramson also, uh, um, he posted a uh, response. A professor posted a response on this uh, and on YouTube that... Uh, you should definitely check out. Uh, he definitely gives YouTube the benefit of the doubt here. You know, he he says you know moderation is important. It's important for you know academic freedom and, and learning. And he understands that there will be uh, issues with that moderation. And I, for one, don't disagree. But I want to dive into this a little more because, from my point of view, I think a lot more is going on there. Uh, for my part. I suggested that uh, Professor Abramson use Odyssey, which is the YouTube alternative uh, that where I talked to founder Jeremy Kaufman back in episode 174. And I know he got my suggestion, but whether he does or not, I, I always 
put that out there because I know if somebody gets my suggestion three times, four times from different, uh, you know, from different angles, then, then eventually they'll, they'll, they'll do it, you know? I mean, and that's how I act too. If somebody suggests that I do something, you know, maybe I'll do it, but I probably won't. But then if like, you know, if I get a random email from, from an acquaintance and then a friend tells me, and then a colleague tells me, it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'll check this out. Um, and I'm obviously, I don't tell anyone to go on Odyssey only, but I say, you know, look, go on, uh, take your YouTube channel and there's a simple, you know, tool you can use in Odyssey and you can just copy it all over an Odyssey. And essentially, you know, now you have it in two places and that's just one more place that people can access your content. Um, in, in this case, you know, uh, they have, um, in, in Jewish history lectures, they have the, uh, some videos hosted locally. So they have them hosted on their own servers. So um, YouTube can't censor that. You can have put it on your own website uh, without going through YouTube. So that's also a possibility um, for sure. Um, so I'll get into why I think this happened in a minute. You know, it kind of asked the question, what should freedom of speech on YouTube be? I mean, there are a lot of people who say it should just be a, a complete free-for-all. Um, we know that that's, you know, not possible. There's stuff that's literally, like, illegal to go on. And, um, you know, even though I'm kind of a, a, a free expression and free idea maximalist, uh, I, I know that eventually you could push it to such a level where you wouldn't want something on there. And, um, you know, there's if there's a certain video product where you're trying to, you know, entice people for certain videos. I mean, you know, one example is adult content and Odyssey handles that as well. You know, you might want to segregate that out a bit. Um, but, you know, that leads to the questions, well, what, what, what should they be doing? I definitely think that it's good to give creators control over the comments uh, if they so want it, especially in the type of stuff that lends itself to kind of just you know, a lot of comments that uh, seem to be what, what could be termed vandalism has been trashing YouTube probably since the beginning, probably since 2004. I noticed this a lot on Twitter, too, and nobody ever does anything about it. You know, people say you could follow who you want. That's great. But then whenever I go to the side on Twitter and I, I click one of the trending topics, um, it's entirely trash talk after the topics. I think I posted a tweet today. Haven't you ever seen a thread where you wish you could block in one button everyone on the thread? I mean, sometimes I feel like that with Twitter. So um, it's a good idea to give creators control over the con comments in some situations. Sometimes there needs to be more control of the uh, recommended content. But um, I do want to point out that, you know, uh, for you know, so, so there's, there's one thing to say, hey, let's post anything that's legal to be posted. Um, I, I recall last year, and I'm sure I did an episode on this. I don't necessarily have a link with me right now, but the New York Times, a couple years ago, I think, put out a video. You know, put out a whole thing saying, hey, all these YouTube videos are radicalizing people, and it's the algorithm that's doing this. And the uh, the powers that be really got the. Uh, the uh, employees in the tech industry, the workers in the tech industry, crazed. And I've seen this. I've seen people getting nuttier and nuttier over the 15 years that I've worked in the tech industry from, you know, the internet is free expression. It allows everybody to, to do everything to really kind of single-mindedly believing that, no, we have to be the arbiters of information and we have to censor and we have to demonetize and otherwise 
all the bad ideas are going to get out and, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the world is going to be destroyed. And that's a really dangerous um, kind of craze uh, to, to, to have. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's leading to, you know, censoring of, well, first of all, true information. And it's sort of a, it makes a mockery of the scientific method and a mockery of, you know, the, pursuit of information, of, of, of academic information, and a, a, a moderate mockery of free expression. I mean, you know, if you're going to have a platform for free expression, I've said this again and again and again, you know, you should have that. Uh, you know, yes, there has to be limits, but it, 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 it <laughs> what's really happening right now is you have a group of people who are completely obsessed with controlling information. And that is, and I know it's hard to believe for certain people who are outside the industry, but it seems like that's what's going on. Um, and look, if you're not their target, and that's the case here, you might be collateral damage if you're trying to say something that's important, as as this case shows. So you know, it doesn't matter that it was restored; it still kind of um, it, it still kind of shows. It still kind of when that kind of thing goes on, it kind of puts a chilling effect on uh, the pursuit of information, which is uh, which is very dangerous. Uh, but we know this. Um, in episode nine, I suggest a decentralized pro- approach to moderation for Facebook. Um, maybe I think YouTube needs to act the same way. But I think YouTube is, I think this stuff's too far gone. I'm not going to suggest anything to YouTube. I'm just saying switch to Odyssey, which right now is kind of, uh, you know, sort of anything legal plus a uh, plus they have a, a mature tag. And there's not really um, a big recommendation algorithm yet. And hopefully, you know, that's coming soon and we can maybe... You could maybe choose from a few different options there. And fortunately, when uh, more recommendation options are available for the library network, it won't be the YouTube rec algorithm, which is designed to, uh, you know, keep you, uh, you know, keep you hooked for as long as possible. It's that it's just designed to kind of, um, it's just designed to help you out. You know, it'll be, hey, I can choose from, uh, a, a few different recommender services. Maybe it'll be a plugin, and I can choose from a few different options. And maybe it's just one I like, one that helps me find videos that are useful to me. And I think that will be um, that will be the that's the best future. That's the future I want. All right. So, what about academic freedom now? Because uh, there's sort of freedom on YouTube. Not everything on YouTube or or Odyssey that you would totally want to be uh, free to do there. Uh, is good for an academic lecture. So let me see if I can give an example. There's some of the early stuff on YouTube. Well, you know, music videos or whatnot. Well, you can do music videos in academia, you know, music, uh, <laughs> music uh, lecture. But, you know, look, there's a lot of, like, you know, fun videos on YouTube that are not really, you know, meant for academic uh, 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 use. So um, here, here's an example that, that does uh, that, that, that does carry over, you know, uh, in, in, in the academy, uh, there should be no freedom to disrupt lectures, to disrupt the professor. And unfortunately, this does happen all the time. Um, and you could say that the disruptors have their right to, uh, you know, freedom of expression, but also that's anti-freedom of expression, it's anti-academic freedom, because if somebody wants to speak, they need the space to, um, 
to speak a bit. And that happened at Yale once when I went to a lecture and there was a protest there and they kind of disrupted the whole thing. This was way back in 2005 before it became a lot more commonplace recently. Um, and so it was very difficult to understand what was going on. Um, then, you know, people have to have the freedom to ask questions. Uh, there's a certain level in an academic setting, certain level of respect required with, I think, some slack. You know, I, I don't think that, um, you know, if, if, if somebody says something, you know, the questioner is allowed to be, you know, slightly ignorant of the rules of decorum when asking a question or, you know, can be co corrected. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not okay to take up everybody's time, um, but of course, if you wind on a little bit, you should be like, okay, uh, let's let's wrap this up. What are we talking about? Or you know, let's keep it within scope. That's totally fine too. Um, but uh, but th there's kind of a certain level of if you're if you're there for learning, there's a certain level of uh, of kind of respect for the situation required. Um, and I want to contrast this with a public hearing, by the way, because I saw this uh, in a situation <laughs> on a school board uh, on a YouTube video of all places the other day where, you know, the government officials were shutting people down for not being respectful. And the guy said, look, uh, you know, we don't have to be nice to you. <laughs> this is a public hearing. Uh, you know, we, we, we think what you're doing is really bad and we get to have our say. That's, a, that's how our system of government work. Uh, but you know, even even there, your requirement is that you get your turn to speak, and you know you don't speak out of turn. But in you know, in in, in exchange, the authorities need to give you your uh, <laughs> your turn. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have a shouting match, which uh, you know we often see in our politics today. Um, another interesting question in terms of academic freedom: Do you have the freedom to investigate anything? This is a tough question, I think, and and I. I think it deserves more thinking on my part. I just have some things to say off the top of my head. You, know, you probably don't have the freedom to investigate any question you want, but how do you draw upon the wisdom to draw that line? I mean, off the top of my head, I could think, first of all, you want to avoid something like a circular citation farms that's like, I print something that's BS, then you agree with me, more BS, and you link me, and then I link you, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we just have... Um, we just have heaps of circular references, and we don't really have any ground truth to what we're saying. Um, and then that's a problem. Uh, academia can be very prone to fads, uh, some of which become, you know, tomorrow's atrocities like eugenics. And I think that, uh, you know, some of these... Uh, you know, some of these things are kind of difficult to suss out sometimes. There needs to be a set of, like, principles in order, you know, to find them. Uh, but we still do want researchers to be free to explore questions that make peers or academy boards uncomfortable. So we, not, not only do we want, we, we, that it's extremely important. And so I think that um, you've got to look for kind of historical, longstanding standards in a field being followed and maybe look for interest uh, in certain work outside of field of study. And most importantly, if I'm doing some work, you want to look for falsification or development of alternative narratives, because that tells me that I'm actually saying something useful, and I am examining evidence. And so this could be true for history, this could be true for math and science, and all that. Um, okay, cool. So uh, now that I said that, uh, let's get on to the uh, infrastructure bill. Because there's what? What is it? A 1.5 trillion infrastructure bill? Is that that's true? Going through Congress, how much is the infrastructure bill? Everything is 
uh, is funny money these days. Uh, infrastructure bill cost. That's what I'm going to comment on. Hmm. I see a whole bunch of numbers being uh, being floated around, but these numbers just keep increasing, increasing, and um, you know. Money doesn't mean anything anymore because they print so much, which is why we need crypto in the first place. So it's not uh, it's not a surprise that uh, the administration is trying to slip something on crypto into the infrastructure bill. Uh, they want to further regulate it, and they you know they want more uh, reporting requirements from everybody involved. And um, some of these reporting requirements do seem kind of insane and probably likely to be very difficult to enforce. Like, hey, if I build a, um, a hardware wallet, do I, have to tell, uh, do I have to tell the government how I use it? Well, I mean, that's the, you know, the analogy is if I build a, uh, a physical wallet that I put in my pocket and I sell it to someone, do I then have to tell the government how many dollars the people are putting in and out of it? Especially since a lot of these hardware wallets don't connect to the internet. So it's just like, hey, this is just a device for you to use. Um, you know, once you have it, we don't have any information on it. Uh, so, Okay, and so, uh, so things like that, um, also things like uh, miners and uh, people involved in uh, in running nodes, which is essentially uh, checking the Bitcoin blockchain as it goes, but not you know not necessarily uh, publishing any uh, any transactions. So some of that seems like you should be able to do that um, you know without much hassle, but. And and with uh, you know you know without getting running afoul of the law, um, of course you know Bitcoin is designed to work under almost any legal regime unless they want to shut down the internet. So we'll have a very interesting discussion regardless of how this comes out. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that a lot of very high level politicians are fighting against it. And in fact, there was. A bill that came through uh, through uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who's a Democrat from Oregon, and sometimes takes a, a very strong, you know, pro privacy stance. Maybe the uh, you know kind of the remnant of the uh, of the true liberal, not classic liberal, but modern liberal uh, contingent in the Democratic Party, and then uh, Cynthia Loomis from. Wyoming, who's a, a new senator from Wyoming, and um, they're oh, and uh, and Toomey from from Pennsylvania. So they were uh, last I checked trying to slip in a change to this regulation to uh, uh, you know to to make it less onerous. Um, if I can quote from TechCrunch article, the legislation's vocal critics argue that the bill's effort. Uh, to do this is slapdash, particularly the bit that would declare anyone responsible for and regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets to be a broker subject to tax reporting requirements. So they're asking, well, you know, it's kind of uh, fuzzy. What about wallets and hardware devices? Um, again, is that an analogous to people who create re real life wallets to hold cash? Um, and, and to quote uh, another article, uh, Jeff Stein, the White House economics reporter for the Washington Post and founder of the Ithaca Voice, recently tweeted that it is remarkable that all of the provisions in a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill crucial to the nation's water systems, electric grid, trains, highways, bridges, and ports, the issue generating the most heat at the goal line is cryptocurrencies. 
very interesting. And according to Cynthia Loomis, the senator who's um, one of the people trying to fix it, the Loomis-Wyden-Toomey Amendment, sponsored by Senators Ron Wyden, Pat Toomey, and me, simply put, this amendment clarifies in law what most of us already believe, that validators of distributed ledger data, like miners, for example, or hardware wallet providers and software developers, should not be required to report transaction data to the IRS. This is common sense because these individuals are not the ones conducting financial transactions. They're simply creating the financial tools. So this, what's the status of this? Well, the status of, of this is there's ongoing procedural fights. Uh, last I looked, they might not make this change in the Senate. Uh, I think there was an attempt at a compromise. Uh, did it work? I, it, it, it may still be on the table, but it's probably going to the House of Representatives. The administration is going to try to slip in these regulations under the radar, of course, and whether they do or not, we'll have another interesting conversation. It might drive crypto innovation outside the United States if it happens. Um, but on the other hand, it shows that they're also relying on crypto taxes to help them pay for uh, pay for their uh, crazy spending. So I um, I'm guessing that they're uh, all the people said they're going to ban crypto. That's that's also off the table as well. All right. So all this leads to my thought the other day, and this is one of my thoughts just when I was in the swimming pool. So who knows if this is, uh, who knows if this is crazy or not. Um, the first chapter of George Gilder's book, Life After Google, it really takes a humorous take on all of the crazy things that need to happen to log into accounts on the internet. You have to log in, you have to remember your password, all the things you have to do to reset your password. You need to, uh, okay, we have one password now. Sometimes you have password managers, so that helps remember passwords. Um, but you know, you have to answer security questions, you need two-factor authentication, you know, then you, sometimes you need to, and then if it doesn't work and then you contact customer support, then you need to fill out a survey and how customer support went. And, um, and all that. And I was wondering, can we use the same tools that we use in, in crypto and in Bitcoin? Can we use it to replace our awful login system? So I'm thinking of a crypto wallet. Now, for those of you who don't know how a crypto a hardware wallet works, it essentially has your private keys uh, in the wallet. So these are the, um, these are the cryptographic keys that you use to sign Bitcoin transactions. And the wallet itself signs the transaction and outputs the transaction to another device. But uh, the way it's designed, it can't actually output the uh, original private key. So it's really safe in that device. Um, and then, of course, these devices have a paper backup. So if you lose it, you can uh, restore it from a paper backup. You can keep in, you know, in your safe or a safe deposit box or something like that. Um, so... Um, so, okay, and so you really don't need two-factor authentication for this. So, all right. So, uh, although there is a second factor in that a lot of the times these devices do have a, a PIN number ava available. It doesn't have to be too crazy of a PIN number, but that way, you know, if somebody, you know, steals your device, they can't take all your money because they need to know your PIN number. Um, I don't know, maybe we could put a, a thumbprint thing on there just to make it a little easier. And so the question is, can we use this to replace our awful login system? You know, uh, it, it essentially the idea is that you would have uh, uh, when you create a new account on a web page, um, instead of choosing a password, you essentially use 
you know, public private key encryption. So you, um, you know, you, 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 you give it a, a public key and you can, and instead of, uh, so, okay. Well, rather than going into how all that works, let's just say that, um, you, know, you create an account and your private key, AKA your password is on your device. Uh, but Instead of actually this device sending the password directly to the website, what it does is it signs a quote-unquote transaction with the password, which essentially proves that, hey, I have the password. Nobody else knows what it is but me, but you know, I have this proof that I have the password to this account, and I can also prove that I just signed it right now, so you can uh, let me in. Um, and I also signed it with a code that you gave me uh, right now. And so that would all kind of work seamlessly. So the way I see it working is, you know, you have this device on you, maybe it's on your keychain, and, um, you know, you, uh, you want to log into a, uh, a website, you press the login button, and then via Bluetooth, it sends a code to your device. And because you have your thumb on the thumbprint thing in your device, or you type in the code, or your, your, uh, um, your, uh, your pin number or something, then it signs a transaction and then boom, you're in. So you don't actually have to type in any password and perhaps, you know, with Bluetooth and all that, all this stuff could be made very, can be done very quickly. Um, and so one question I think you would ask, well, why not just use your mobile phone? Why does this need to be separate from your mobile phone? Well, first of all, it's easy access because I think that a lot of time spent, particularly with professionals on the internet and also just like, you know, messing around on the internet is there's a lot of mental overhead that it takes to log into all of these, uh, all of these sites and all of these accounts. You know, even if you're, you know, oftentimes if you're at your computer all day, you're still um, logged in, but it's amazing how many, you know, yes, it's true. If I go to Google on my own device. Uh, I don't have to log in every single time, but it's amazing how many times you get kind of uh, uh, stymied and, 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 uh, and stopped and context switched by having to put in passwords and two-factor authentications, um, especially in the modern day. It just seems to be getting worse and worse. Um, so what I, I, and if you had to take out your phone to do that, well, first of all, then logging in on your phone you know, wouldn't help. You wouldn't want to close one app and open another app, and then you wouldn't have to like open your, your signing app. No, so you really have to have easy access to this device. You just want to take it out. It could even be like a ring on your, uh, on your finger too. Boom. Um, and then secondly, another good reason why you don't want it on your phone is you don't want to deal with security concerns on your phone because the phone is designed... Uh, as a high communication model. It's lots of data is going back and forth. And, uh, you know, you, it's hard to prove that certain pieces of information are not being uh, sent. And it's, it's a lot easier to have a, a security breach on that kind of a thing uh, with a mobile device. And also, when you trade in your mobile device for something new, you don't want to then have to worry, are all my passwords going to be transferred over? No, 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 no. You just want to... Um, you just want to deal with trading in your phone. I mean, we have to deal with that nowadays with two-factor authentication where, you know, if you trade in your phone, you're worried about the, the two-factor authentications that are in your phone and say Google Authenticator might not be in your next phone. Um, and that's not what you want to think about when you're getting a new uh, iPhone or Android device, whereas this device, it would, first of all, it would last a lot longer. And secondly, because 
it only does a small number of things very well, it wouldn't really have to go through, uh, you know, it's a lot more likely to be highly secure and it could be more easily audited for security. Um, And it would get people used to owning and controlling private keys in kind of a safe way, uh, which I think would be very good for society. So is this crazy? Maybe. I bet the future wouldn't look exactly like this, but that's kind of what I want. I I go onto a machine. I, uh, let's say I have to log in to, um, I don't know, a, 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 a work, uh, a, a site for, for work, a system for work. I click login and then I hit my, uh, my special ring or keychain or whatever. Uh, I, I hold it up to something and then boom, I'm in. Um, so I don't really have to think about it that hard. Um, again, I don't think the future will look exactly like this. Just an idea. Maybe this could save us a lot of time, a lot of frustration with the context switch. And it could also save people, I think, from a lot of, a lot of phishing scams. Um, it, you know, it, it, wouldn't it would be very difficult to because what a phishing scam does is it gives you a site that looks a lot like the site that you want to log into and then so you give it your password where in this case um in this case the the login is you know the site gives you gives the device a it talks to the device first gives it a code and the device signs that code with the password so um you know, you you wouldn't be able to do that with a phishing site because it wouldn't be able to get the original uh, code from the original service. So I don't know. We'll see. Just an idea. Uh, do you think that uh, people would stand for having another device if it would make their life that much easier? We'll see. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if uh, a company like Apple has thought of this. They're probably not going to put something out you know, in the next year or so, but, uh, but I think it's quite possible. All right. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show to support the local maximum sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. The local maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.